Welcome back to the present stage, Conversations with Theatre Writers. Today is our 25th episode. My name is Dan Rubens. I'm a theatre critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. And I am very grateful today for all of the uh, incredible generosity of the playwrights, lyricists, composers, librettists who joined this podcast, made this milestone episode possible from Robert Horn and Susie Miller, my first guests, uh, talking about Shucked and Prima Facey, who took the leap into an, an unknown uh, podcast all the way through to today's guests, Rebecca Greer-Milosic and Jacob Yandora, the creators of How to Dance in Ohio. How to Dance in Ohio is running at the Belasco Theater on Broadway through February 11th. The books and book and lyrics of the show are by Rebecca Greer-Milosic and the music is by Jacob Yandora. The cast album was recently released. Uh, so as we're discussing uh, in some cases in uh, tremendously precise detail uh, moments of orchestration or rewrites of uh, of musical moments you can refer to that cast album uh, for uh, some clarification um, and to introduce yourself to the score um, it was really a treat uh, to have this wide-ranging conversation that really dives pretty deep into musical development processes what it's like to revise a show in a very intense preview period. Um, and I think most importantly, our conversations around the representation that the show brings to Broadway in terms of the autistic young adult characters and performers uh, who are at the show's center uh, and what it meant to these creators to be tasked with the challenge and responsibility of telling the story. Uh, so I'm really grateful to them. Uh, for all the depth that they shared with me, and I hope you enjoy this 25th episode of The Present Stage, Conversations with Theatre Writers, with Rebecca Greer-Milosic and Jacob Yandora. Rebecca Greer-Milosic and Jacob Yandora, welcome to The Present Stage. Hi, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much. For <laughs> um, It's wonderful to have you here, and I wanted to start by asking you both uh, how do you think that How to Dance in Ohio, both the process of writing it and the journey of staging it, will change the way that you create art moving forward? Ooh, great question. Uh, you know, I, I think for me, one of the ways in which creating How to Dance in Ohio will change the way that I make art is uh, there was a lot of freedom of information um, between the writers, the actors, our access team, um, and, and, uh, and not just the usual sort of writers, director, choreo, music team, you know, it felt like uh, this whole team was designing the show and everybody had a lot more input. And I loved that for one. I loved how everybody felt like they could have um, sort of some authorship over this piece. Yeah, I, I uh, to kind of piggyback off of that, I think this process has made me a better collaborator. Uh, it is, you know, we talk about accessibility, inclusivity, and um, it's really made me, you know, sit and relax and sink into the other collaborators. Um, and so um, I've enjoyed every bit of that process. Um, and so I really want to take what we've learned in the room and learning how to make 
even the rehearsal room more accessible um, and patience. <laughs> um, I want to take that with me for future projects. Do you think that that extends as well in terms of the kind of stories that you want to tell moving forward? I don't know what projects you've been working on sort of at the same time or or since How Dance in Ohio has opened. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Jacob. I think, you know, we are a huge interest of ours is community. And so I think we're always going to be writing about community in one way or another uh, in, in all of our projects going forward. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think that definitely will carry on uh, for future projects with us. Especially since, you know, one of the huge themes of this show about how to dance in Ohio is nothing about us without us, right. um, which is a uh, slogan in the disability community. And so as Jacob said, we, we love, writing stories that are about community. And so of course, like any community that we're writing about <laughs> will be involved in what we do. Um, to sort of piggyback off of that um, concept of nothing about us without us that you just brought up, Rebecca, I was curious sort of at what point in the journey of taking on this project and adapting this documentary, um, did you feel sort of totally confident in sort of your voices in telling the story and sort of where your journey is sort of parallel or did you have uh sort of uh overlapping or or distinct sort of pathways to get to a place where you felt like you felt ready to tell the story yourselves as artists yeah i mean that's a question that i still ask myself to be honest and and i think what's beautiful about this show is i i've always felt like this is a living and breathing um, piece of art, you know, like even even just when we started writing it, I remember feeling so nervous about sort of like the language around autism. And then of course, like iceberg effect, it, like the more that we learned, not just about like autism culture, but also like disabilities activism, the more I was like, oh my gosh, we don't know anything about this. So there is like such a journey to be taken. And what I said about like everyone building the piece together, I think that's actually what gave me confidence is is actually all the voices that came on board and were like, oh, I want to tell this story too. This is my story. And then I could be like, oh, great. Like we're all telling this story together. That's what gave me confidence. <laughs> um, Jacob, do you want to add anything in terms of your own? Do you feel like you had a, a have had similar? Oh my gosh. Oh, what 100%, you know, and uh, I, my sister is autistic. And so um, that's how this story came to be. And, um, you know, she was the first person I told and she encouraged me. She was like, Jacob, please do this. You know, the world needs to know what it's like to be me. And, and so, but we knew very early on that we are just not the, we, we needed a bigger community and more collaborators and um, to make sure all of that authenticity was, was, secured on all sides of the in every team you know not just the cast on stage not you know we have them in the pit we have you know uh different team members and different um uh you know costume design uh, lighting design and and that's just been such a thrilling um opportunity for all of us so i'm 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 really really proud of what we what everyone did um, I'm curious what feedback you received from your autistic collaborators along the journey that was sort of most impactful or what sort of made you 
rethink things in different ways, um, sort of at any stage in the in the journey? Great question, Dan. Um, Jacob, I can jump in there unless you. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I feel like there were sort of like different tiers along the way. Um, like Ava Riggelhaupt was the first autistic consultant that we brought onto the project, and um, Ava was so helpful and even like I mentioned, kind of giving us the 101 crash course and to like, you can say the word disability, it's not a big deal. And we worked with uh, with wonderful organization CoLab to do anti-ableism training. And that was a sort of like just getting comfortable around um, disability and issues of disability. And so, um, and autism, of course. And, and then there was sort of like the deeper level when we got our autistic cast members, we still had Ava reading every draft, but then we got um, more people brought onto our team on both sides of the table. And again, like, thank goodness for our cast and crew because like nobody was ever shy about being like, Rebecca, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. or, or like, I would never say that. Or even things like um, the character Meredith in the show. And gosh, this, this was in Broadway rehearsals where I had written her saying, sure. And my script consultant came up to me and she said, I don't think Meredith would say sure. She's a yes or no person. And it's little things like that where I was like, you're totally right. Like, and we, even I went through the script and I made sure that every answer was yes or no. Cause I was like, yes, Meredith is a yes or no person. And you know, <laughs> so it was little things like that, that I felt like really gave us um, like starting out really broad. And then as the development went on and we added more people to the team getting really nuanced and if, if, if I'm not going on too much about this, another example, I worked really closely with um, Des, who plays Remy, about what characters would be represented in the cosplay that Remy did. And it's funny because we go back and forth sometimes where Des is still mad at me for not putting Trixie Mattel in the show. And I love Trixie <laughs> And we went through like Dolly Parton, Donna Summer, Tammy Faye. We'd have to go back and forth where he's like, who's Tammy Faye? And I was like, look it up, Des. The audience will love it. And then, and again, like Autistic Spice, Des came up with that, you know? So there, it was so, that's how I think that we got the really personal details was just like workshopping it with everybody. Totally. And from a musical perspective too, Nicole D'Angelo, who is our uh, assistant, assistant music director, but also one of our script consultants and a part of the accessibility team, you know, they were incredibly helpful, uh, especially when we started bringing in other instruments into the room and, uh, uh, and then, you know, started experimenting with orchestrations and, you know, certain timbres of, of sounds and making sure that you know, we we stayed away from those sounds that were triggering for our cast or for other audience members or different, you know, members of the team. So that was also in, like incredibly uh, helpful. Um, so yeah, Nicole D'Angelo for the win. <laughs> the star. <laughs> <laughs> the star, the star of our show. Uh, I think that's a really good transition into my next question I was gonna ask um, really for, for you, Jacob. Mm -hmm. And hearing Rebecca talk about sort of language as being mm -hmm. so central to the lyrics and book of the show, I'm curious about musical language. Mm -hmm. I've heard examples of scores by autistic composers where the composers have said that they're trying to, in the musical vocabulary itself, communicate something about what it feels like to be inside an mm -hmm. autistic mind. Sure. Um, and I'm curious if that is something that you felt able to do or interested in or like how to, how did you think about sort of um expressing identity through the actual 
notes or rhythms or or orchestrations or things like that? Sure. I never wanted to create a sound for autism. And Alexandra Shiva, who's the filmmaker uh, of the documentary, uh, and I talked about that heavily and where they had a, the hardest part of the film was uh, scoring it. And I, I think they went through three or five different composers um, uh, because they were all trying to create a sound for autism. And, and I, you know, that's not my place to write. And so I wanted to create the similarities between us all and the universal need for connection. That being said, I wanted to create motifs and themes. And, and that's why counterpoint is so necessary in our show. And that each character has its own theme, it, its own, their own uh, um, journey throughout the show. And those themes yeah. are introduced in the opening number and then explored and developed throughout the entire show. And they overlap because, you know, um, we're all going through life together, but we're looking at life differently in different ways. And so that's what I really wanted to capture um, with with the score. And if I can jump on that counterpoint, Jacob, because mm -hmm. I, I love the way that you do that musical storytelling, because each of the seven characters have their own unique seven, uh, their own unique musical theme and all those themes fit together. To, so it's the music showing that like it's these unique characters, but they are a community and mm -hmm. and how like when you put everything together, it it makes this beautiful um, this beautiful harmony together, which I think is quite lovely. Mm -hmm. And also it's used in the score um, a few different times to show also that like the the world can be sonically overwhelming and we can be getting lots of information. So I do think totally. there's a bit of like when you can't totally pull apart, like, wait, who am I supposed to be listening to? What's going on? <laughs> the opening of our show, the first time that we do that, the character Tommy is like, stops everybody is like, wait a minute. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and that literally was the, my next question I was going to ask about that moment, which I yeah. think is maybe my favorite moment in the show because oh, yeah. um, for that sort of meta-theatrical reason of sort of, I'm also a huge counterpoint person and, and sort, yeah. of, sort of my my initial reaction to sort of that is like yes this is my favorite sounds and is hey. many people singing at the same time and I can't and it's overwhelming but I think sort of immediately highlighting for the audience like actually let's think not only about sort of what are these characters experiencing but what are your fellow your fellow audience members experiencing and sort of what is the sensory information that you're getting um is a really cool way to to show that um I loved I I was I was in the audience one night and um and when that moment happened I heard a, a mother behind me and she goes oh I was feeling that too and she, <laughs> said, <laughs> she, she said that out loud it was so great it was so great um and I think it is actually I mean certainly in in sort of all different kinds of accommodations in all different contexts the idea of um that what is good for some people is probably good for everyone um and that maybe not having an overwhelming lighting design uh totally would a lot of people will say actually i was kind of sensitive to that too or um mm -hmm. or oh wow really highlighting not all those lyrics at the same time really helps me focus as well um so i think it's it's a cool device to help people sort of think about their own experience of uh absorbing music or absorbing text thank um, you yeah it's cool i had a i saw the show pretty early in previews and then saw mm -hmm. a press performance mm -hmm. um 
and I was really impressed with sort of how much the show tightened over over those weeks. Um, and I saw a TikTok from your director, Sammy Kennold, saying that there were 800 plus changes made to the script over that that period of time. Um, mm -hmm. And I think especially I felt like sort of all of the central characters sort of emotional arcs felt much clearer over over those weeks of revisions. Um, and I'm curious yeah. if you could. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, I'm curious if you could talk about what the process was like, both artistically, sort of like what was the core of the work you were doing, but also sort of personally as writers sort of in your first Broadway yeah. previews process, taking in a lot, putting it back out and then having yeah. shows every night, sort of what <laughs> what that was like for you to sort of manage as a team and as, I mean, as people. Yeah. It was it was a process, and, and we, you know we are we are not precious with our work, and we knew we'd be making changes throughout. Um, but I think to to you know we first of all have to all be on the same page. You know the director, our producers, our other team members, um, and so we listened to our producers. You know for certain feedback that they received from different co-producers or other people that they had in the audience who they respected. And our main thing was just you know we wanted to um, shave off time. You know, that was our main thing, and especially with Act One um, and how to get that tighter. And so, um, you know, we knew we needed to tighten, if, you know, certain book scenes up or cut different verses in the opening, get to the get to the idea of the dance sooner. Um, and then we ultimately cut one song um, at the end of Act One, which was actually one of our favorite songs um, for the show. But, you know, we we it wasn't central to the overall story and it came a place in act one uh, where you could feel the audience getting a little restless, you know? And so we decided to, to cut it and it's going to be a great chunk song. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, but the character still has a musical moment, um, but we you know we didn't need to spend four minutes in that moment. So, um, so, you know, there were really changes like that. And th therefore it made, you know, like what you said, I think the other, you know, our group's storylines even clearer. Um, so, um, yeah, we 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 loved cutting, and it just became a challenge. We were like, okay, what can we cut now? <laughs> That's true. And, we got sort of weirdly competitive about like, okay, we've got like eight minutes off now. We ended up with over ten, and you know, I, I think it was it was fourteen. Yeah, that's what that's what Ben Holtzman, yeah, one of our producers. That's very said. impressive. Fourteen. We can, we can make that the official number. I won't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, Dan. I, honestly, I could talk about this so much because. Um, first of all, I feel like I learned so much about um, how to tighten things and make things better faster, like because it's such a fast mm -hmm. and intense process. process. And it's also um, like we would have changes queued up many days in advance. And it was such a gift to get to do the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But also we had so many extra parade rehearsals instead of like actual changing our show <laughs> rehearsals. So like that that added to the scramble even more. And I looked at the book writing cuts as either um like really big cuts, like the song that Jacob said, or like certain like a half a page. But a lot of it was little shaves, like yeah. a line here, a phrase here, like a musical phrase there. Um and I I feel like I, I had a couple big takeaways as a writer. One of them was um to look at my I feel like this is such a silly thing, but honestly, it could be helpful to other writers. Look at my change list every day and see if there's anything that I could just cut instead of rewriting. 
<laughs> yeah. So many things I was like, well, now I don't have to rewrite that. We're just cutting it from the show. Yeah. And then the other thing that I took away was so much of our job, especially at that stage on Broadway, when audiences expect like a certain velocity, a certain polish, like you just have to make it clear and entertaining. And like mm -hmm. th those are the number one and number two jobs at that point. So I think with our show, act one time functions super differently than an act two, right? It's like more than 99 days in act one and then all of act two, <laughs> like under 48 hours. So I think as soon as we got audiences, we realized that we just, those like 99 plus mm -hmm. days had to move. They just but had to move so fast. All the while you're getting to know these characters. You know, I always think of act one as the setup and act two as the payoff, you know, and act, <laughs> act one is, you know, act two wouldn't be successful without act one because you get to know everyone, you know, and you you can get, you get to care about them. Um, Honestly, so, it, it was so fun to make the changes in previews. And yeah. And like, it, it's never done though. People always say, when do you know it's done? And it's never done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were there any changes that you let go or didn't have time for that you're, that you're comfortable sharing examples of? It's just cuts, honestly. Yeah. Like I always say, I think we probably could have cut another like two to four minutes out of act one. And, and, and you know what, like there will be other productions of this show and, and yeah. I'm, both of us are like, like, when, when do we get to put the other cuts in? <laughs> I get to, I get, that's what I said. The show to me is not done. Like, it's so yeah. beautiful that we got to have this launch on Broadway. Um, but again, yeah, it's, it's nothing huge. It's mostly just tightening things up. And like you said, where, where the storylines went to from like early previews to opening, I think we would just do a couple more twists of the screw, you know? Yeah. Were there specific discoveries in that preview revision period that you, that were sort of aha moments where you took something out or you tweaked something and said, oh, now that is clicking that like specific examples that you could speak to? Are you I have one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I mean, many. I, I think one of the biggest ones, um, we, we've always had that, that storyline in act two about Dr. Amigo going out with a reporter to the nightclub and there being that um, misunderstanding. Mm. And it's always been a point of like contention and like, why does it need to be there? And, and for us, we, we really think that Dr. Amigo has to practice what he preaches. And it's also like sort of the narrative reflecting what's happening in the narrative of like, when all of a sudden it's becoming about Dr. Amigo and not about the people it's supposed to be about. And yet, it used to be, I'm sure, Dan, when you first saw the show, that Dr. Amigo suggests they go to the Encore nightclub. And, and like, we just couldn't write it in a way that didn't make it feel icky, that, that he was making the reach. And then one day it was just like, oh my gosh, Rebecca, why, why doesn't she ask him instead? And that way he's not starting anything. He thinks that he's being asked out. It's so relatable. It's her mistake. It's his mistake. Um, and that to me really helped. That that was my biggest like, oh, thank goodness. And it was one of the last changes we made. And I'm so glad we made it because I think it made a huge difference. I definitely, that definitely stood out to me as a change that sort of, 
for for audiences who were distracted by sort of whatever implications of the plot line is originally written, I think it allowed the audience to sort of refocus on sort of the central emotional storyline issue and not sort of get hung up on like it felt it felt like a very I remember seeing it the second time and thinking like, oh, that's that's that that fixed like that works. Um so I, um one moment that I I Jacob, I don't know if you wanted to share one as well. One moment that stood out to me, and now I don't know if I'm misremembering it or I imagined it as a change. Um you can tell me if I'm completely fabricating this. Um in the in the number where Ashley is having the clients practice counting on the beat, um, when I first saw the show, I remember that so the first time they try to do that, um, it's really messy. And what I remember is the second time they tried to do it, the first time I saw it, it was like suddenly flawless and like exactly on the beat. And then the second time I saw the show, the second time they tried to count on the beat, it was not perfect, but it was getting better. And I felt like, was that was that a change that actually happened? Or did I imagine that? Yeah, we definitely, um, that was a section that we like trimmed just to, you know, we didn't need to spend two minutes in, you know, accounting I, section. And I don't know if that was sort of, if it got changed in the, in the way, like for the reasons that, that it landed, but it ended up being, because I was sort of taken out of the moment the first time by how quickly they caught on to it, or it uh -huh. felt sort of like a sort of theatrical flourish. And then it felt much more about sort of the growth and sort of mm -hmm. um some people are getting it and some people are still working working on counting on the beat um and that that moment felt very different to me the second time so it's 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 exciting to hear you talk about sort of these like minute changes and then i don't know if it's interesting to you to hear sort of how it might reflect oh, so to audiences <laughs> who are sort of experiencing things in in maybe totally different ways than you were but i imagining. i love I love that because originally it was, you know, everyone starting out uh, trying to keep up and count in their own ways. And I think it was originally like 16 bars of music and they were like perfect by the end. And then um, <laughs> and I and I think we literally cut like eight or 10 bars out of it. And it just it just showed everyone's progress and making progress, but still a ways to go. And so I, I love um, I love that you caught on to that. That was a moment yeah. that I that really I don't know why I don't know exactly why, but the second time I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that works so much better for me." Yeah, awesome. Well, yeah. Also, if it's interesting to know, so that butterflies rewrite was actually like much bigger than that section too, and it it was a little bit of a um, move all the puzzle pieces around because a bunch of the dialogue got moved to all different places there was mm -hmm. just one day we were looking at it and all of a sudden I was like oh I can take what we did in like eight pages and do it in five <laughs> so we made all these cuts and shifts um including uh that that part and and again that was a lot of yeah you know, a lot of little things like that of like oh these two sections could get smushed together and it'll be more it'll have more velocity yeah a lot of the dialogue that was really towards the end um was really moved up to the top and so it really just sparked it right at the beginning um and we just you know we felt like you know extended sequences are always tricky to get together because it's start stop start stop you know we really wanted to make it more <laughs> yeah. you know fluid um, well, our, and, our and more song focused oh, ahead, and more song focused i would say yeah the song focus is exactly right, Jade. Sorry, I yeah. was 
thinking the same thing that like so much of our show is built on interruptions. Like that was one of our main concepts of from from the very first draft is like, oh, in 2020, at the time it was 2018, you know, like we're, we're constantly being interrupted by things. And um, how does that sort of reflect the neurodivergent experience? But then at some point, we also had to wind it back and be like, wait, but like, but you want to be in a song. <laughs> you yeah. want to honor the song structure. <laughs> Um, that just reminded me, it's not quite an interruption in that way, but the other moment that I, that I think along with the, uh, with the Tommy interruption of the opening number, my other maybe favorite sort of meta theatrical moment is the double email reading that we get in the second <laughs> act, um, where we first hear, uh, Dr. Amigo, well, I, what's the, the order is first we hear, um, the angry version, the angry version of how, <laughs> how, uh, Ashley is imagining that um, Drew's e email to Dr. Amigo would read, and then we hear Dr. Amigo reimagining it. So Drew comes <laughs> back on and is now, everything has a positive slant on it, um, which is kind of such a sort of brilliant turn. How did that, how did that moment come to be? Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think you just handed me literally the, 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 the scene as written. And, and I think I was like, we could do this in another, like, reimagine it in a beautiful, you know, sort of positive way. And so, um, you know, we wrote the angry version and then trans, trans uh, sort of scribed it into the the more lovely version. Um, but then really that came alive in the room too with with uh, Liam's portrayal of the angry versus the happy too. Yeah, so much of the show is about communication. And so it was important to me, like, I don't think of cell phone conversations and emails as being theatrical, but I was thinking especially about like this community of people is not always going to be like a show up in person and say what they think uh, in that kind of, I mean, I, I don't always pick up the phone or meet up in person to say what I think I often write an email. <laughs> and so I just kept thinking about how um, we could make an email theatrical. That was so mm -hmm. much a question and like communication. Um, there's also a lot of foreign language in the show, which was like, you know, how do we how do we show many different styles of communication and how we can misconstrue all of them? <laughs> totally. I also like go back to um, Aristotle's Poetics, where he talks about everything should be seen or heard on stage. And um, there was a lot of like cell phone usage in the show. And I was like, we need to find a way to make make cell phones feel more heightened or messages or emails, you know, feel more heightened. And so that was a fun opportunity to do that. To rewind a little bit to the documentary and the sort of adaptation process. Um, well, I guess I wasn't going to ask this question, but now that I'm saying it, I'm curious sort of at what point did you stop thinking about the documentary as a source text and start using your own script as sort of what you were working from or, or even like into the Broadway run where you, looking back at the documentary and, and looking for things to pull from or, or moments to lift from? You know, it was really great. I mean, when we first met with Alexander Shiva, you know, and when Hal Prince was involved, you know, their words were, do not put the documentary on stage. You know, documentaries and musicals are very different mediums and let's make our own thing. So it's very much an original musical just inspired by the idea of the documentary. Um, and while we honor, you know, many people in the documentary, most of what's in the show, um, like the head uh, brain picking scene, all these different things were inspired by our visits to the center and meeting everyone at Amigo Family Counseling. Um, and so um, 
Alexander was, you know, very supportive of us just making making it making our own thing like i don't think we even watched the documentary i didn't <laughs> like in the last like two or three years um so um yeah you want to elaborate on that rebecca yeah no no, no. I, I actually you said that very nicely and i knew you would um yeah just we had so much wonderful encouragement to make it our own thing and then i think once we cast our actors um it, it yeah. became a bit about them and our community there's like a sort of meta level when I'm watching the show because like the birth of the idea of the spring Mm -hmm. formal from Dr. Amigo feels like very much like hey let's put on this show together and so then by the end when everyone's dancing in the finale I'm like we did this oh my gosh we're like on Broadway we're dancing there (laughs) it always feels like really uh, like a triumph again (laughs) It was cool too. Like our first, when we did our yeah, our first draft, first twenty nine hour reading, which was fall of twenty twenty one. Rebecca and I often talk about that as like the emotional blueprint of of the show. Like we had all like the different point, points in the in the in, in the plot and the storytelling, um, but a lot of songs were written yet. You know, nothing at all wasn't written. Uh, slow dancing wasn't written. Even though it was actually one of the first songs we wrote, um, it was a spec song that we wrote, but it's not, very it's, it, it's very different now. <laughs> um, Under Control wasn't written. Um, gosh, there's so many, so many more. Um, and after that first reading and, you know, experiencing the actor, Drift wasn't written, um, you know, experiencing the actors and, and their personal stories and how they took on the character then everything just started filling in you know and uh it was really a beautiful process what was how early in the writing process did you visit um Dr. Amigo's clinic and meet all of the clients I think it was about um maybe almost a year into the process um yeah so yeah, we didn't start writing until 2018. Um, so I think we went, yeah, I think we met them like spring of 2019, I believe. Yeah. Um, I remember the cherry blossom spread or the magnolia, yeah. blossom, whatever the pink blossoms in Columbus were. I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I remember um, we had maybe like five demos at that time. Like we had a demo of, of, um, of the opening number. Um, the opening number was really the first thing that we wrote um, and Hal was very instrumental uh, in that opening number. And he gave us that assignment. You know, he said, you're gonna start with your opening number even though you're gonna work on it till the, you know, the day before you open. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's how you figure out the tone of the show. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, we started with that and I think we had Unlikely Animals, we had, um, getting ready for the dance Uh, yeah I think we had some version of waves and wires um but like building momentum didn't exist yet none of none of like those songs existed yet um and so but I remember going to Amigo Family Counseling and then we we played some of the demos for uh Alexander Shiva came with us on that we played some of the demos for her then um so that was a really like exciting process um and then like after that then it all just like started pouring, pouring out. 
I want to ask you one more question about the documentary, and then mm -hmm. I want to pick up on your reference to Hal Prince, of course. Um, mm. In I, one thing that I noticed about the documentary and your adaptation is that Jessica seems like a much more sort of like central in terms of like the sort of the leading protagonist of the documentary in a way and how much we focus on her experiences. And I noticed that you sort of have divided, sort of reassigned some of those moments, including sort of the Mel pet store confrontation comes from Jessica's moments in the documentary. Um, and I was kind of amazed how sort of almost verbatim <laughs> that interaction yeah. is. Um, and I'm wondering sort of what how like sort of what went into sort of uh or sort of uh what are the i don't know if the stakes is the right word but what are the challenges or complexities of sort of taking real people and their real experiences and sort of artistically splitting them into pieces or reassigning them or especially as you get to know them as human beings after you've been kind of working on that um was that ever sort of challenging or uncomfortable or, or tricky to think about in that way? There were definitely times when I thought to myself, like, oh my gosh, I, I hope that Jessica Sullivan, the real Jessica Sullivan, I, I hope she likes this. Uh, and and I also think that expectations helped. Like we, we made it very clear that we were making a lot of changes, especially, uh, and, and we welcomed questions. Like once we put up character breakdowns for casting. Dr. Amigo came back with like, hey, you know, we looked at the character breakdowns and like, why is it phrased this way? What does this mean? And we would answer those questions. Um, but mostly we made it clear that the characters were gonna be very different. I I often have to and stop myself in talking about characters because I'm like, the real people are the characters from the documentary. Cause I'm like, they're not characters in the documentary. Yeah. But what, one thing that uh, Alexander Shiva said to us as well is, you know, she and her producing team observed everyone in the center, but it just so happened to be more about Caroline and Jessica and Meredith um, because of the editing, you know, and those were more yeah. of the stories that they could piece together. And so putting that on stage, we knew we wanted to obviously show a, 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 a more vast um representation of the spectrum and um so that was important to us to to have you know and it's a musical so we wanted to have more people <laughs> um, uh so yeah that's kind of that was our assignment to expand upon what the documentary yeah. did it's interesting because uh, jacob mentioned like the emotional blueprint that we started with the show and like when what we did with the documentary um and maybe this segues us to Hal also, it, you know, we knew that we had to impose a dramatic structure on it. That was the first thing that Hal said. He was like, we're gonna have to make up a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and so we're not gonna be precious about the documentary. And yet for my first draft, before we had our autistic actors, the seven that we cast in October, 2021, I, most of that first draft was just dialogue lifted exactly from the documentary and so what you're talking about in the pausing class scene that's a scene that just hasn't changed that much because it's just so powerful and affecting the way that it was in the documentary um but so much more of the show was originally like that and they might have been lines moved from character to character um to to sort of fit the seven instead of focusing on these three women um and then another change like 
with the Jessica storyline in particular, you know, when we first started writing it, so much of it was about her and Tommy. And that's still, of course, she has the whole song about, you know, Tommy, we have so much in common. But I think as we wrote it over time, it became less about Jessica's romance. Like we deal with Caroline's love life and, and the romantic entanglement she's involved in. But for Jessica, I really wanted the storyline to be not about a boy, but about her friendship with Caroline. Um, so yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of these decisions got made along the way. You know, like uh, Hal really wanted to end the show with Drew and Meredith in spotlight dancing, you know, for the first time taking that, that first step. And so Drew and Meredith being the central couple, we honestly just kind of reverse engineered that into the story. So it's interesting on this side of Broadway to be like, why, why did you make that choice? Yeah. <laughs> But but honestly, like it, it's such a beautiful organic way that like all these choices served us, and so that's how the characters were formed. Yeah. To make that Halperin's transition, Jacob, I I've heard you say in other interviews that at one point he told you be Bernstein, and <laughs> I'm I'd love to hear you talk more about uh in in this post Meister landscape. Uh, how did you yeah how did how did you interpret that piece of feedback and sort of what has it meant to you throughout? The process yeah what that what that meant to me was be yourself you know don't try to be anything else be daring uh be uncomfortable um don't take the easy way around it you know and um and and so i think that's a piece of feedback uh or a piece of advice that i just carry close to my heart and in other projects that i will take with me of you know just you know, I actually kind of love that be uncomfortable because that makes you better, you know, and that makes you challenge and question your work. And, um, you know, Rebecca and I are always, you know, as many writers, you know, we, we love the rewriting process. And so just don't go with the first thing you put down, you know, um, see, see how you can make it better. That's how I took it. And Rebecca, for you in, in beginning to shape that, uh, the structure of the show before Hal Prince passed away, sort of what did you learn from him about, or what advice did he give you in terms of building the show? Um, another great question, Dan. Yeah, Hal really talked a lot about creating spaces within a black box. And I spent so much time at my computer imagining the world, but I felt like Hal was really good at helping me connect what was going to be on the page on my computer screen with how it would live in the space from the very first draft. I, working with him was wild because I would write a scene and I would hand it to him and then he would send a new scene back to me and he had changed all my stage directions with the blocking that he was going to do in the show, like on Broadway. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> This is how it will look. This is where they will walk. And I honestly loved it. I'm the youngest in my family. Everyone's bossy in my family. And so I'm very <laughs> easygoing. And I'm like, yes, this is where they go. Like, yes, Hell Prince. Okay. <laughs> I'm writing a scene too. <laughs> but but he wanted us to like argue with him. You know, oh, he would he, he would <laughs> he would be like, don't be quiet. <laughs> you know, he's like, I, you know, just you know, what do you mean? Like, just because I'm Hal Prince, I want you to argue with me. <laughs> you know, I want you yeah. to like question, question my thoughts. And I just remember one time I was silent and he goes, 
argue with me, Jacob, argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he made me, you know, uh, yeah, he made me a better collaborator at really like articulating certain dramatic reasons or, you know, um, things that we wanted to do with the show. And I think also in the that line of, um, he also told us once that like we had to make history. Like if you're making a musical, mm -hmm. you have to make history. And I've been thinking about that a bunch lately because at, on one hand, I'm such like a Midwesterner that I'm like, oh, that's so self-important. Like you can't, I can't think about things that way. But the way I've been thinking it more is like, I mean, you know, we spent usually like 10 years working on a show um, and there aren't, there's only so many stages that it can go on. And so I think he meant like, it has to be, epic and something that's deeply deeply personal and small can also be epic but I feel like mm. Hal really had this way of thinking about theater that was like it, it it's about the magic and the yeah reality <laughs> and it, it's it's so cool you know he, he put up he was putting up theater where workshops didn't exist readings didn't exist you know you learned by just putting it up and you know follies was written so quickly you know and every year they would put churn something out and and you know and i i think that's also what he means by be bernstein you know be you know be groundbreaking in the sense of like just put it up there let's do this thing you know and so many shows just can get stuck in development now and you know when tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and then i think you lose that the rawness or you know the um what you originally set out to do you know so um I'm I'm so grateful for that advice and to hold close to us every day. Yeah. One question I have that I'm still sort of formulating, but hopefully it will make sense. Um, in terms, I guess it connects to that idea of making history. Um, I've heard Sammy Candles and maybe other folks as well describe the show as sort of a combination of activism and art, and I'm wondering, sort of, if you could talk about the challenges of writing something where you obviously want audiences to respond to it emotionally, but you also want them to respond to it emotionally in the right way or for the right reasons. And you don't want people leaving crying and saying they were so inspiring or I feel so bad for those characters or something like that. You want them to get the, the message as well as the emotional engagement. And I think it's possible for people to not just in, in general, possible for an audience to have one and not the other. Um, so sort of how did you think about sort of, that seems like maybe like an added layer of challenge that most shows don't have where you don't just want audiences to be happy, you want them to be happy and also get it in the way that you get it. Mm -hmm. Do you start? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think that goes back to like, our job is to make it clear and entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess <laughs> those are the two reasons, yeah. And, and so much of the, so much. I love, sorry, I oh. love that. I love that people have said walking out, you know, they feel like they've learned something, but they don't feel like they've, you know, been fed the show is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or like on a soapbox, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, what I, what I love about this show is it's the start of a conversation. You know, we're living in a world now where, where, you know, people are, 
starting to learn how to talk about disability. You know, just saying, you know, disability, say the word. It's it's not a bad word, you know, and and encouraging that. And, and, and language is shifting every day. Um, and so I I what I love about this show is that it's it's allowing audiences to learn something that they may haven't learned um, and to start the conversation and to inquire more about um, the themes and topics, you know? And so um, that's what I, that's what I love. There's also, (laughs) no, no, there's a blueprint in the script that to help the audience members. I mean, the article is in there to, to Mm -hmm. get, to work in this meta way to, help people think about part of how they're perhaps discussing disability. Because again, after you after you hear that article, that's all, you know, inspiration porn about how inspiring these, these you know, quote unquote kids are. If you leave the theater and you're like, wow, those kids were so inspiring. Right, then you've been, then you may have missed it. And I, I have to tell yes. you that has been, I think the challenge <laughs> right now. And how do you politely tell someone these aren't kids? you know, and how do you play and, you know, and again, their intentions are good, but those intentions can be infantilizing and hurtful to some people. And so, um, yeah, I I think if anything to the show is, is about being impeccable with your word, you know, and, and learning, learning the, the true meaning behind what you're saying. Um, yeah, and it's like Mel says, repetition creates reality. Creates reality. <laughs> it's also like, just because you hear it once in a musical doesn't mean that you're like, oh, yes, now I'm a disabilities advocate expert. Right. <laughs> right. And it's, it's a funny thing. Like, I always laugh that, like, my biggest dream is for society to outpace this musical very fast. You know, like, I'd love it if a year from now it was like, oh, how to dance in Ohio. That show is so outdated now. Like, everybody's down with autism, you know? <laughs> But, but, you know, in the meantime, uh, I hope that it creates some scripts to help like neurotypical people talk about disability, too, in a way that makes them feel comfortable. Um, yeah, I think for me, sort of the, the the thing that sort of most surprised, I mean, I don't know if we we don't need to get into sort of a range, the range of sort of ableism and critical response or whatever, but I think I was surprised by how more than once I saw people sort of expressing surprise at the professionalism of the performances, um, which, or like, you couldn't even tell, um, which seems, I mean, A, maybe a level that like you should already have coming into into the theater just by being a person in society, but also um, I think um, the yeah, I mean, I my one of my hopes sort of moving forward is that all of your cast members are cast in a range of Broadway roles that allow them to Amen. play ours is too. That yes, characters ours, across absolutely. all identities as well. Um, and I think certainly showcasing the the full range of and and inviting actors to sort of and to claim their autistic identity as part of who they are as a performer without that being sort of a defining trait, um, I think has been a really powerful outgrowth of the show. And I hope that that will continue to, to expand. 
Thank you. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. And, and look like the, um, I think so much of what we explored in our making accommodations for our autistic teammates, so much of it was to do with learning style and, um, and communication styles. And honestly, that applies to everyone, like entering a rehearsal space where you are interested in learning everyone's different communication styles and learning styles and making a workplace that is compatible for all of that. That's what we should all be doing. Um, I think I want to end by asking you if you could each, I'd love Jacob, if you want to identify maybe a favorite lyric in the show, and then Rebecca, if you want to share a favorite musical moment, um, that would be, maybe I'll, I'll just share one of my favorite lyrics is I've aced my ACTs um, <laughs> because um, it it's uh, sort of like hidden homophone buried in an acronym <laughs> that just feels like uh, uh, not where you expect sort of wordplay to be happening. Um, it's, I, every time I hear it, I'm just like, oh, that's just slides in. <laughs> I love that. I would love it if, if people thought of me and thought, yes, wordplay where you don't expect it. <laughs> let that be my legacy. <laughs> my favorite lyric is in reincarnation. We've all come so far, be at peace where you are. That's the whole point of reincarnation. Love that lyric. Such a good one. One of my favorite lyrics too. Sorry, I know I wrote that. Maybe that's <laughs> <laughs> um, God, it's so hard to pick my favorite um, musical moment in this show, but I have such a soft spot in my heart um, for unlikely animals and um, the keys get slightly, slightly higher as that song on and so um and i love to sing unlikely animals too and i love how the melody and unlikely animals that very last a land of unlikely and the last key that it's in it's just in this like really wistful delicate place and i remember when jacob told me he did that on purpose and i was like <laughs> there is um my going off of unlikely animals the the theme where it's the uh drew and meredith um connection theme the da da dum ba da da dum ba da da dum um we first hear that in unlikely animals and then it starts act two um and uh in drift and it's all that theme is all throughout drift and then it's the final theme that you hear before they um before they connect and dance at the end um so that's fun. Um, I know I said that would be my last question, but I, also, <laughs> I that also reminded me that I had some, well, I guess maybe for both of you, are there, I, I thought the orchestrations were very cool um, and also noticed sort of some like changes throughout the, between the two performances that I heard. Oh, great. Actually. Yeah. Um, Bruce is so amazing. I love this. Um, I so one of the the two of the moments that stood out to me just listening to the album was the French horn line in the beginning mm. of building momentum, um, and then in the second verse of Under Control where there's sort of some like hand percussion that comes in, yeah, um, is very the djembe. cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if there are I guess orchestration or otherwise. If you each want to share a moment in the show that someone besides the two of you contributed. Uh, that you feel sort of like brought something that you'd created to life in a way that you hadn't 
imagined it. And we'll end, we'll actually end on that. <laughs> oh, mine's really easy because our choreographer, Maite Natalio, and our um, director, Sammy Canald, are the ones who came up with the uh, Regency ball dance in mm. slow dancing. And that, I, I think that actually unlocked not just that song, song number, but a way that choreography acts as sort of like communal fantasy in the show. And that was a really fun back and forth um, of like the, the dance getting put in and then us being like, okay, how can we punch up this dance and make it even funnier? And, and that back, I told my team multiple times, I was like, I feel like you made my dream come true. <laughs> choreography. <laughs> was the was the red flag moment in that yours or was that that's that that's most like I'll take credit for that one <laughs> so but the way that my tape did it it was like oh my gosh you absolutely understood everything <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I love that I think one of my favorite orchestral moments is unlikely animals back to that song um Bruce just underlined I mean you can't it's so hard. You can never like really hear all the orchestrations in a Broadway house and it's so upsetting. But when you listen to the album, you hear like a didgeridoo and all these different like really cool um, uh, the uh, textures that he put in there. I mean, Bruce Coughlin is just the master of textures um, and, uh, you know, and, and how he takes all of my themes that are in the piano vocal score and just uplifting it, you know, it feels like it's almost like a facelift, you know, it's just, it's the coolest, coolest, um, process. Um, so yeah, that's actually one of my favorite orchestral moments, orchestral moments in the score. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. Aww. Congratulations on your journey to Broadway and, and for bringing these important stories to audiences. Um, and I really look forward to hearing what you create next. Thank you so much, Dan. This was so much fun. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Yeah, have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening to The Present Stage, streaming every Friday wherever you stream podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, I hope you'll leave a review, a five-star rating. We'll subscribe for more episodes. And we'll follow us at The Present Stage on Instagram. Please share this podcast with a friend and we can't wait to see you next time on The Present Stage.